Our text this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 7. And it reads, And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up. Now you might want a little background for this. These were some dark days in the land of Israel. Famine was abroad in the land. Ghastly death was looking many people in Israel right in the face. As we would say, it was staring them eyeball to eyeball. And the cause of the calamity, the author of Kings tells us and gives us to understand, is the sin of the people. It was sin that had cut off their water supply. It was sin that had withered their gardens. It was sin that had parched their fields. It was sin that had blighted their fruit trees. It was sin that had changed the land into a desert. Sin. It's always the mother of desolation and death. Elijah, God's man, had been sent by God to warn Ahab, the wicked king, of this impending disaster. After Elijah had warned Ahab of the impending disaster at the command of God, Elijah went off into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, Elijah made his abode by the brook Sharif. And there God told him, He said, Elijah, I'm going to supply you with food to eat and with water to drink. And it was a situation that I think was altogether congenial to the prophet of God. Because Elijah was the man of the open spaces. Elijah was a citizen of the outdoors. He was an outdoorsman. So there by the brookside, Elijah found life quite pleasant because the brook was quite companionable with Elijah. It sang of life and it prattled of springs that came from far up among the hills. But better than that, the brook whispered to Elijah the care of God. And the brook spoke to Elijah of the provisions made by the love of a father. So when Elijah drank from the brook, Elijah was drinking more than water. Elijah was drinking in faith because God was caring for him. And when Elijah drank from the brook, he was drinking in the firm conviction that God was interested in him. That God was watching over him and God was standing there ready to supply all of his needs. But one morning, Elijah visited the brook and things seemed somehow different. He was struck by the fact that the little stream was not as songful as it had been. The prattle of the brook was more subdued and more hushed. 
And there came to Elijah the realization that the waters of the brook were failing. And for the prophet of God, it was a bewildering experience. But he could not shut his eyes to the fact that the brook was slowly drying up. And there came a day that he made his way to its banks and found it altogether dry. There was no song at all. There was nothing but sand, parched, glittering, dry sand. And there was not a drop of water. Folks, there is a sense in which this experience is not altogether unique to Elijah. There are few, if any of us, that have not at some point in our lives known the tragedy of a dry brook. We can't help but read the story of Elijah and at the same time not see a bit of our own biography. Think perhaps what a beautiful brook we once had in our own lives. Clear, sweet, and bordered with beautiful flowers. Large, stately green trees bent themselves above our brook. And those trees were mirrored in the beautiful, glassy, clear water of our brook. And beautiful and lush green grass grew on the banks of our brook. And our brook, it sang like a mockingbird and talked like a happy, prattling child. But there came a day even in our own experience where the brook in our life dried up. And if you remember that time, you can't think about it even now without a stab of pain and a tear or two or even perhaps a gush of tears. If I asked you this morning, what was your brook? What was your brook that some one day went dry? Maybe it was a brook of worldly prosperity that vanished. And when it vanished, you were left with nothing but scorching sands of poverty. Or maybe your brook was the gushing stream of buoyant health and that withered away and it became the blistering heat and sun of disease. And every breath is agony and every hour is torture. Or maybe our brook was youthful ambitions and dreams and those ambitions and those dreams have gone unrealized and spring of life has turned to autumn and winter is slowly approaching. And our dreams have died under the breath of failure. Or maybe your brook was a brook of human love but the one that was loved has slipped away. And today there's a void that nothing in this world can fill. And maybe the future is a longing for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that's still. Well, why did that brook dry up that day? Why did the waters of the brook dry up? I wonder if there's any 
satisfying answer to that question. I wonder if Elijah found an answer that brought consolation and healing of heart to him when the brook dried up. And I wonder if those of us that have passed through a similar life experience can find an answer that will bring a bit of help to our troubled and hurting hearts. Healing to our own hearts. You see, that brook did not dry up because God had forgotten His prophet. God didn't forget Elijah. You can be sure the God of heaven was not so busy governing the universe that He allowed the thoughts of Elijah to be crowded out of His mind. Are you listening? God doesn't forget us either. You and I might forget sometimes. You and I might even forget God. But God never forgets and God never forgets us. God is great enough to like the sun and the stars. And He's also great enough to stoop to that humble task of clothing the lily. And the disaster didn't come about because God had stopped loving His prophet. God loves us with an everlasting love. We might reject God. We might wound God. We might rebel against God. We might rob God of the privilege of blessing us. But with everything we might do, We are powerless to kill God's love. And if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. And cling to this as tenaciously as a bulldog clings to a bone. God loves you. He loves you when your world is bright with sunshine. He loves you when your world is black with a starless night. So be assured that when Elijah's brook dried up in the long ago, Elijah's brook did not dry up because God stopped loving him. And Elijah's brook did not dry up because Elijah had sinned. It didn't dry up because Elijah had taken himself outside the circle of the divine will of God. I'm not saying that brooks never dry up for that reason. Sin is something that can always and always will bring about moral famine and moral desolation. And while we always suffer as the result of our sin, there's a pain that is not born of the sin of the one who suffers the pain. Granted, there are some folks who suffer pain because they are so sinful and so wicked. And there are other folks that suffer because they're good. And it took a long time for mankind to find that out. The conventional wisdom once upon a time was 
that whenever any individual suffered, that was proof that that individual had sinned. That's why those three friends of Job's were so sure that their sorely smitten friend had gone wrong somewhere. And yet Job stood strong in his integrity. And God vindicated his claim. But still Elijah's brook dried up. Why? It dried up for the same reason that the other brooks in that area dried up. There hadn't been any rain. Back of this calamity, the prophet was convinced was the sin of Israel. Elijah was suffering from a guilt that was not his own. He was sharing the pain and the tragedy of a sinning nation that he was a part of. Folks, our lives are interwoven with one another. We have the privilege of rejoicing with those that rejoice. And we are compelled to weep with those that weep. Elijah's calamity came to him at the hands of his sinning people. But notice this. God is not to be charged with this calamity. It was the sin of the people. Whatever wrong had come to Elijah... He could not justly charge that to God. And what is true of God's prophet in the long ago is also true of us. Hold on to this. Whatever evil might have come your way, and whatever evil might come your way, God is not the originator of it. Folks have a constant tendency to charge God with calamities for which God is not responsible. Something happens and the first thing someone says, Oh, why God? Why did you do this to me? That's the knee-jerk reaction that folks have. God is not the author of evil. And God is not helpless in the face of evil. When that brook dried up, when Elijah went to the brook and it was dry and parched and was nothing but sand, Elijah was not condemned to die of thirst. Our God is a resourceful God. Our God is an infinitely resourceful God. And God sent Elijah to the widow at Zarephath. And there the prophet of God found sustenance. She became a blessing in his life and he became an even greater blessing in her life. 
God did not dry Elijah's brook. But God did overrule the calamity that had come through the sin of others. And He overruled it to the enrichment of the life of the prophet. And He overruled it to the enrichment of the world. Folks, our mighty God has been working through all the centuries. Do you remember the song that the kids used to sing in Bible school? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And our mighty God's been working through all of time. That was a great wrong the Jews did to Paul when they arrested Paul and put him in prison. And after he remained for two years in Caesarea, he was carried to Rome. God was not responsible for Paul's hardships. He was not responsible for his persecutions. He was not to blame for Paul's imprisonment in Rome. But if God was not to blame... God neither was defeated by the wicked designs of the enemies of Paul. He turned the evil intended by foes into good. So Paul was able to write to the church at Philippi. It's in chapter 1 and verse 12. He said, I would you should understand, brethren, the things that have happened to me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. How did he do it? How did the prophet change the calamity into good? How did Elijah change his calamity to good? He did it by simply remaining within the will of God. All things do not work together for good for everybody. And let's face it, there are times that we look up and we think that all things are working together for our undoing and our utter destruction. But there are those for whom all things work together for good now and forevermore. And that is for that man or that woman who loves God. Because that person that loves God is not defeated by disaster. That person that loves God is not conquered by calamity. To that man or that woman that loves God, there is absolutely nothing that comes that God cannot cause to work for good. The God of heaven can change every defeat into victory. And the God of heaven can change every loss into gain. Being within and living within the circle of God's will 
means obedience to what God has told us to do. Living in the circle of God's will is obedience to what God has commanded. Listen to what John would write in 1 John 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. This is the love of God doing what God tells us to do. This is the love of God living God's kind of life. Now listen to Paul in Romans eight twenty eight. And we know. It's not speculation. It's not what we think. Paul says, and we know. That all things work together for good to them that love God. Well, substitute John's statement in 1 John for the last clause in that sentence. And we know. That all things work together for good to those that live God's kind of life. So if we're living within the circle of God's will, God's going to take care of us. God's going to take care of us for time and for eternity because our God is a wonderful and a powerful God. Now this morning, are you living in the circle of God's will? If not, and you need to make changes, this is the opportunity to do that as we stand and while we sing.